You are listening to Sermon Select on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. Recent years have seen an incredible rise of contempt for every kind of human authority in our country. Blatant disregard for human authority is everywhere. Demonstrations turn violent. Protesters attack each other. Civil, family, and church authority are disregarded. One really fears the kind of anarchy and violence which may overwhelm our once peaceful country if this trend continues. Think this is still true? More true than it was then? You know it is. And thus, a consideration of the text which I was introducing that morning is also relevant this evening. I have told you last week that I have sensed in myself and you and in conversations with other Christians a pressing need to consider uh, the whole subject of the Christian's relationship to civil authority, pressing principles for the present time. Now, in this brief treatment, I want to consider three major passages. I think they are the three major passages actually in the New Testament that uh, ought to focus our attention on this matter. And uh, last week, I turned you to the first of them, Romans 13, 1 to 7, and it's vastly instructive teaching on the fact that civil authority is divine in its origin. The major lesson we learned was this, the divine authority of civil government is to be recognized and we are obligated to subordinate ourselves to it. Tonight we'll turn to the second major passage, I believe it is Acts 5.29, that's the passage we're going to look at tonight. Next week we'll come to the third major passage, that's Matthew 22 and its parallels where Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar." and to God the things that are God's. So turn, if you haven't already, to Acts 5.29 in your Bibles, please. There Peter says simply, but profoundly, we must obey God rather than men. Earlier, Just the chapter earlier, in fact, Peter had stated the same view of human authority in slightly different language. There he says in Acts 4, 19 and 20, But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. I think the great truth with regard to human and civil authority, which we learn from this passage, is that human authority is delegated in its character. Human authority is delegated, of course I mean delegated from God, in its character. But before we come to examine the practical implications of that truth, I want to deepen your appreciation of the passage Uh, that we're going to be looking at this evening and its teaching. And I would do that by way of noticing several, three, things about what it says. So my outline is going to be the inspection of Acts 5.29 and then the implication 
of Acts 5 and verse 29. So consider with me, first of all, the inspection of Acts 5.29. There are three things to be noticed with regard to the famous statement of Peter in Acts 5.29. Each of them, I think, is also implied in the parallel statement in Acts 4.19 and 20. I want you to think about them with me. And the first of those things is that this text, this text affirms a general truth. This text affirms a general truth. It is to be carefully noticed that Peter Peter speaks in a very general fashion here. He does not say that we must obey God rather than a man, as if he had a specific individual or ruler in mind, and with regard to that person only, we might uh, obey God rather than man. No. And he does not say that we must obey God rather than you men. He was speaking to certain men. Uh, He was speaking to the Sanhedrin, but he does not speak as if he only had the Sanhedrin in mind. His language is perfectly general and contrasts God and men in general. He intends to state a general or universal principle of conduct when he says we must obey God rather than men. In line with this uh, thought, it is to be remembered that he is addressing and speaking to the Sanhedrin. Uh, Let's think about who the Sanhedrin were for a moment. They were the ruling council of that remnant of the theocratic kingdom that was still allowed to exist in Judea under the Roman Empire. The theocratic kingdom did not practice the separation of church and state. The civil rulers were the religious rulers, and the religious rulers were the civil rulers. And the Sanhedrin was the body that ruled the remnant of the theocracy that was allowed to exist in Judea under the Roman imperial rule. As such, the Sanhedrin was not just a religious authority, nor was it simply a civil authority. It was not a religious authority only in the sense that it could put people out of the synagogues. No, Paul obtained from it the ability to imprison and even kill Christians, remember. So this Sanhedrin was both a religious and a civil authority. It was both of these things. The Sanhedrin exercised both religious and civil authority. It had the power not only to put people out of the synagogue, it had the power to put them to death with the sword if Rome permitted. And so the Sanhedrin very well represents all kinds of human authority in general. And so Peter here affirms a general truth, doesn't he? All and every human authority must give way before divine authority. That's the significance. It's that general significance that we must attribute to the words, we must obey God rather than men. But all this begins to tread on my second point, so let me come to it. This text not only affirms, asserts a general truth, but this text assumes, it assumes a great reality. It assumes a great reality. What reality is it of which I am speaking? 
Well, I'm speaking of the great reality that God has appointed that human life is to be governed and directed by human authorities to whom he has given power. He has so appointed, in fact, several kinds of human authority. When uh, when Peter says we must obey God rather than men, he's not talking about men who have usurped some authority uh, that, uh, that they have no real right to. He's talking about men who actually do have divinely delegated authority. This has uh, great and practical implications, which I will enlarge even more upon next week. But no one can deny that there is such a thing as human power. We all live under its different manifestations all the time. You children know that you live under the power of your parents. We know as citizens of our country that we live under the power of our local, state, and federal authorities. We all live under different manifestations of human power. But what needs to be emphasized is that these powers have real authority because God has given it to them. They are not independent. They are not autonomous, giving themselves power, seizing power, usurping influence over human society. These powers, if they are genuine, uh, genuinely authorities, are appointed by God. In them, we must see the hand and authority of God. Now, we saw a clear proof of this actually last week when we studied Romans 13, 1 to 7. There, Paul makes, in some respects, the astounding assertion that the imperial rule of the Roman Empire was ordained of God. He even says that it's a minister and servant of God. Such civil authority was appointed in the Noahic Covenant, which was given to preserve the kingdom of creation. Such authority is a kind appointment of God's common grace to bring order, peace, and safety, at least in measure, to our world. And so we saw from Romans 13, 1-7, the very clear teaching, the very patent teaching of that passage is that civil authority derives its authority from God. Civil power derives its authority from God. But the first such authority ever appointed, appointed in the human race was, of course, familial authority, and that, of course, was also appointed by God, the authority of the family in its different manifestations. It was appointed in the very fabric of God's original creation, the way God made the, made the world appointed this authority. This authority is the authority of the husband over the wife, the father in the home, and the parents over their children. The very way in which God created the human race to procreate children and bring them up in the context of covenant marriage was the mandating of such familial authority. We're all familiar with Paul's famous assertion of this authority in Ephesians 6, 1 to 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Not He does not say, for this is necessary. He says, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment. It's a commandment of God, one of the Ten Commandments, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. 
But this text I've just quoted is simply the most famous of many examples in the Bible that assume the God-given character of familial authority. And so familial authority derives its authority from God. Another human authority, another human authority was appointed by God in connection with the work of redemption. It is the authority of the church. We may call this ecclesiastical authority. Many are the assertions of the authority of the church over its members and the pastors over the church in the New Testament. The church member is called to listen to the church, Matthew 18, 15 to 17, on pain of being put out of the church. The church has authority over its members. Did you know that you're a member of a religious order? And that religious order has authority over you if you're a member of the church. Now, you ought to be a member of the church, but uh, when you become a member of the church, you become a member of a religious order, and that religious or order has authority over you. The members of the church are also called to obey their pastors, a form of the same verb used in Acts 5.29, meaning to obey, is also used in Hebrews 13.17, where Christians are called to obey and even to submit to their pastors. And so uh, we have here a clear indication. Uh, it's, uh, it's broad in its implications. A lot of modern Christians ought to have press upon them, professing Christians at least, now the question, if they're not members of local churches, who are your pastors? The New Testament assumes Christians have pastors. And that's because they assume that Christians are members of local churches. Well, Hebrews 13, 17 assumes that Christians have pastors to whom they must give obedience and submission. And from whence do such leaders derive their authority? Well, the answer is also found in the very book of Acts that we're looking at in Acts 5. Uh, we remember Acts 20, 28? It reads, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. But it, you see, it's very clear in the text. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which... The Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Pastors do not derive their authority from their own uh, power of personality. No, they derive their authority, if they have it at all, from God, from the Holy Spirit, who makes them overseers. And so ecclesiastical authority derives from God. So, civil, familial and ecclesiastical powers all derive their authority from God. That is crucial for the practical application of this passage to understand what Peter is doing here. He's not uh, flippantly saying, men don't matter, only God matters. Peter recognizes, Peter believes with the whole word of God that there are genuine human authorities that have power delegated to them from God, have a kind of divine authority over human life and the slice of human life which God has put under their authority. So it's crucial to remember this as well. When Peter says, you must obey God, 
rather than men is crucial for the practical application of the passage in front of us that we know that Peter is assuming that there are human authorities who have power delegated them from God himself. This text affirms then a general truth. It assumes a great reality. And thirdly and finally, this text addresses a specific issue. It addresses a specific issue. If you were listening last week, what I'm about to say shouldn't surprise you. The issue in Acts 5.29 is slightly different than the issue addressed in Romans 13. In fact, in some respects, it's quite different. There, Paul calls the Roman Christians to recognize the authority of Rome and subordinate themselves to it, to recognize it as their God-appointed civil authority. They are to put themselves under that authority. They are not to get involved with terrorist or revolutionary movements which attack the government. That issue is not, however, what is on Peter's mind here in Acts 5.29. Of course, Peter recognizes the authority of the Sanhedrin. Of course, he submits to it. Of course, he will not engage in terrorist assaults on it. In fact, later, when Paul doesn't recognize because of his terrible contact, his terrible conduct, the authority of the high priest, and and replies quite strongly and and with condemnation, God shall smite you, you whitewashed wall. When he's rebuked for saying that, because it's the high priest he's talking about, Paul recognizes the authority of the high priest in the Sanhedrin by saying, uh, I, that's right, uh, the Bible says, the Old Testament says, you now shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Well, you see, that issue of revolution is not at all in Peter's mind here. Of course he submits to the authority of the Sanhedrin. Of course he will not engage in terrorist assaults on it. It's the last thing on his on his mind. None of those are Peter's concern or Peter's on Peter's mind at all. His issue is this. Shall he and his fellow apostles obey the command of the Sanhedrin not to preach the gospel or speak in the name of Jesus? That's the issue. Shall they obey this command? Not shall they recognize their general authority over the Judean remnant of the Old Testament theocracy. That's not the point. The point is this. When they issue such a command, not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus, shall the apostles obey that command? You see, this was something that they had been directly, unmistakably, we might even say messianically, commanded to do. They were the witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. So the issue is not, shall they revolt? The issue is this. Shall they disobey and suffer the possible consequences? And for B. Peter, the answer to that question can be only one thing. And you know what it is. We must obey God rather than men. Now, it's important that there be no doubt in your mind what this word translated obey in our text actually means. 
So I want you to show you, I want to show you what it means by way of illustration and confirmation by having you look at the other two places where it's used in the book of Acts. Turn in your Bibles, please. Well, you don't have to turn far for the first one because it's only a couple verses later. To Acts 5.32. Acts 5.32. Acts 5.32 is one of those two other places where the word is used in the book of Acts. Where we read, and we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, Peter, as you notice from verse 31, just identified Jesus as the one God has exalted as a prince and savior to give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. But to receive the Holy Spirit, who is the confirmation of these gifts, this exalted prince must be obeyed. He is a prince. He has authority. He issues commands. And those commands must be obeyed if one is to receive the Holy Spirit in token and manifestation of his presence and blessing. There must be a commitment to do what this prince commands in his exalted authority. That's what obedience is, doing what the prince commands. Another, and the only other, place where this word is used in the book of Acts is Acts 27, 21, if you turn there. Acts 27, 21. This is, of course, in the midst of that amazing account of the shipwreck of the boat that Paul is on traveling to Rome after he'd appealed to Caesar. It's an amazing account. I look forward to getting to it someday, I hope, in my exposition of the book of Acts, because it's a wonderful, wonderful account of the providence of God. I mean, there's so much to be learned from it. But Acts 27 21 is in the midst of that shipwreck account, and it reads, When they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have, and here's the word, followed my advice, and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Now, Paul is apparently saying, I told you so. I gave you advice. And you should have obeyed my advice. What does it mean to follow my advice? Do what he said. That's what it means. And that's what obedience is. It's when authority gives you a command and you do what they say. Now, children, obedience is not simply sitting there and doing nothing. When daddy gives you a command, it's not sitting there and arguing with your parents. Obedience is doing what they say immediately and sweetly. And if you're not doing that, you're not obeying. Well, that's what it means to obey. To obey means to do what someone says. Children, it means that if dad says to take the trash dumpster to the curb, if you're big enough to do that, you take the trash dumpster to the curb. Young people, it means that if mom says to wash the dishes, then you wash the dishes. It's not complicated. Thus, Acts 5.29, we observe, addresses a specific issue. 
It is the issue of obedience. Obedience. It contemplates a difficult, dangerous, and real problem in our fallen world. It contemplates a situation where the very rulers God has appointed, the very rulers God has appointed, so misuse their authority that using the very authority God has given them, they actually command people to disobey God. In that situation, in that situation where you face the horrendous, difficult, dangerous, highly problematic situation of an authority God has pointed, telling you to disobey God, in that situation, the dictate of Scripture is clear. We must obey God rather than men. But, 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 these consequences, those consequences, other consequences, it does not matter. The dictate is still clear. We must obey God rather than men. But this might happen to me. That might happen to me. This might go wrong. The other thing might go wrong. Still, we must obey God rather than men. This is the inevitable, the unavoidable command of Scripture. God give us grace to obey it when we have reason to have to do it. So, human authority, since it is derived from God, is delegated to men from God. It must, therefore, be used for God. It is even, we may say, a special form of bearing the image of God. 1 Corinthians eleven seven, for instance, makes this clear when it asserts that the man and his headship over the woman is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. And so, as a, a special form of divine image-bearing, those who have this authority, who image God to men either as kings or fathers or shepherds, as those with such authority, they obviously have to use that authority to further God, God's commands, to help people keep God's commands, and not to hinder them. It is an unspeakable abuse of authority. When those who bear the name Father, because God is the first Father. When those who bear the name King, because God is the first King. When those who bear the name Shepherd, because God is the first Shepherd. When those who bear the name Father, because God is the first Father. When those with such names, having them from God, use that authority to tell people, actually to disobey that authority, which gave them theirs. It's scandalous. And so, you see, when they do that, as delegated authority, that authority is limited. It may not be, it must not be, used to contradict the laws of the God who gave it. It must not transgress the boundaries of the purpose for which God gave it. And Calvin, I think, who saw this as clearly as anybody, uh, draws the necessary practical application as we conclude our inspection of Acts 5.29. He says, We are commanded to obey them in the Lord. And this is evident from the foundation before laid. 
for they preside in that station which the Lord has exalted them by communicating to them a portion of his honor. Therefore, if they instigate us to any transgression of the law, we may justly consider them not as parents, but as strangers who attempt to seduce us from obedience to our real father. The same observation is applicable to princes, lords, superiors of every description, for it is infamous and absurd that their eminence should avail to depreciate the preeminence of God upon which it depends and to which it ought to conduct us. Amen. Amen. But all of that brings us to consider, then, the implication of Acts 5.29, the implication of the passage. What do we learn from the delegated character of human authority from the, in general and civil authority in particular by way of application? What do we learn uh, that we ought to put into practice in our own lives? Well, we learn an important rule, then, with regard to conscientious disobedience. The rule regarding conscientious disobedience, which this truth teaches, should be obvious. When human authority requires the violation of God's law, it must be disobeyed. <laughs> That's too easy a statement for some people to make, and it's an impossible statement for other people to make. We must not lose the weight of what we're saying. But when human authority, human authority, which has its authority from God himself, requires the violation of God's law, then it must be disobeyed. I was speaking with a pastor in a Zoom call several weeks ago. His church is just blocks from the state capital of Sacramento. I think he said it's on the same street. He said the governor of California drives by their church building on his way to work. And they were they were they had been trying to do things like they should be doing them in California. Uh, they were meeting on five acres of ground, but it was so hot and so smoky from all the fires that it was becoming impossible to meet. And he was saying that uh, he was about to have to consider with his elders whether they had to take the step to return to their church building so that they could actually worship God. But he was, he was saying, and I think it was the right thing for him to say, this was a tremendously consequential decision in light of the fact that the authorities there are appointed by God. And he was feeling the weight of this command that we must obey God rather than men. This is the manifest meaning, though, of Peter's statements in Acts 4.19 and 20 and Acts 5.29. We are always in danger of giving in to our innate hatred of authority, and that's true of us. We innately hate authority, each one of us. That's what it means to be a son of Adam and a daughter of Eve. We are always in danger of giving in to our innate hatred of authority, our innate uh, dislike of obeying authority, and yet, yet, notwithstanding that danger that we're always in, 
Yet, there is this command of God that we must obey God rather than men, and in some cases it's necessary so to do, and it is not. In those cases, a manifestation of a stubborn and disobedient spirit. Well, that's the first thing. We learn an important rule with regard to conscientious disobedience. Here's the second thing. We learn an important condition for such conscientious disobedience. We learn an important condition for such conscientious disobedience. We must be careful, here it is, to assure ourselves from the scriptures that a divine precept is really at stake. Too many in our day mistake their own feelings, impulses, and opinions for the law of God. The will of God for them is whatever subjectively they may feel it to be. Too many in our own day, then, mistake their own feelings, impulses, and opinions for the law of God. Where, however, a biblical command will be violated, disobedience is demanded. But before you invoke Acts 5.29, we must make sure that the Bible says that what they're commanding is sin. The apostles had such an objective biblical command. Go into all the world and preach the gospel, it ran. We must make sure that we have the same grounds if we choose to justify disobedience on the basis of Acts 5.29. It is not your subjective opinion or your personal feeling about the will of God that justifies such disobedience. It is It must be the objective word of God. And then we learn a serious temptation which we must resist. A serious temptation which we must resist. Let me be honest. I hate everything about the COVID-19 lockdowns. I do. I know and God will bring good to his people out of them. I hope that uh, that will happen on the basis of that knowledge that all things work together for good to those who love God. But I still detest all this stuff. Perhaps you feel the same way, but here's the problem. We are apt to exalt our dislikes into sins. <laughs> but simply because we dislike something does not make it a sin to do it. We are not allowed to make those two things equivalent in our minds. To do that is to substitute, really, it is to substitute our own will for the will of God. Just because wives dislike a certain policy of their husbands (laughs) does not give them the right to invoke Acts 5.29. Their dislike does not make it a sin. Just because church members dislike a certain policy of their pastors, their dislike does not make the policy of their pastors a sin. Just because citizens dislike a certain policy of their government does not make it sin. But it's very easy to deceive yourself into thinking it does. It's very easy to deceive ourselves into thinking that the fact that we dislike something so intensely makes it sin. 
We have to remember, as those in submission to authority, that God may be working through our authorities to accomplish his own purposes, even when we dislike their policies. Unless their mandates involve real sin, we must not claim a right to disobey on the basis of Acts 5.29. Why do you keep saying, Pastor, on the basis of Acts 5.29? Well, because of something I'm going to say next week. Acts 5.29 is not the only warrant that gives Christians the possibility of disobeying. I'm going to come to that next week. Too often Christians have said, I wasn't going to say this, I was going to surprise you with it next week, but I'll say it right now. Too often Christians have said, the only reason you can ever disobey is, is Acts 5.29 and, sin, and the, the rulers commanding sin. It isn't quite that simple. But if you're going to invoke Acts 5.29, you better make very sure it is sin. You follow me? Well, last word. What's the gospel word in this text for us and for you? We must obey God. And what you must think of, first of all, there is not the Ten Commandments. Oh, I want you to obey the Ten Commandments. You will be holy, just, and good. It will be holy for you. It will be just to other men. It will be good for you if you obey the Ten Commandments. His ways are pleasant ways, and all his paths are peace. Also, I want you to obey for God's glory, other men's uh, justice, and your own good, the Ten Commandments. But that's not the first and most important obedience that into which you must engage, or with which you must engage. Rather, first, the Scripture teaches that you must obey the gospel. And we are witnesses of these things, Acts 5.32 says, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Hebrews 5.9 says, and having been made perfect, he became to all those, here it is again, who obey him, the source of eternal salvation. Or remember Romans 10.3, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Same word he used in Romans 13.1. They did not subordinate themselves to the righteousness of God. You must, first of all, most of all, preeminently obey the gospel. Christ is an exalted prince, and to take him as Savior means a commitment to obey him. Here's the reason some of you older and younger people may not be saved. You have not bowed your will in obedience to God's way of salvation. To God's offers, you have said, no. To God's way of salvation, you have said, I'll do it my own way. To God's Christ, you have said, what the Jews said. I will not have this man to rule over me. Let me simply and kindly say, you have no alternative. If you will not entrust yourself to the gospel of Christ and so obey God, you will not be saved. Is your blind stubbornness, my friend, really worth it? Bottom line, you will not be saved by obeying God, but you will not be saved without it. (laughs) You will not be saved because you have obeyed God. You'll be saved because of the righteousness of Christ, because you entrust yourself to that righteousness. 
but you will not be saved without it. You'll be saved by being united to Christ, by believing, but you will not be saved without obeying the gospel. Because the gospel is a command, and to believe it is necessarily a kind of obedience. May God grant this to you. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. We're thankful for the opportunity to listen to your word, to hear your word, and to find that word a lamp to our feet and a light to our ways. And we ask your help and mercy now and for grace for your people to know when it is and when the time comes that, they, that we must obey God rather than men. Help us to know when the time has not come, but when the time has come, make us courageous to obey God rather than men. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.